couple weeks ago, I, uh, my, when my beard was fledgling, uh, Daniel Hunt came up to me and said, you look like Paul. And I thought, Paul from the Bible? He said, yeah. I said, well, how do you know what Paul looks like? And he said, well, I just write in my imagination. That's, that's how you look. You know, you look like Paul. And I thought, boy, those are big uh, shoes to fill. Uh, hope you don't mind me telling that little story, Daniel. Uh, didn't ask his permission ahead of time. But this morning we're going to be talking about not Paul, but Peter. And we'll be in, eventually, Acts chapter 10, which talks about or tells the account of uh, the, the conversion of Cornelius, the first official Gentile uh, Christian or convert to, to Christianity in the early church. I thought before that, though, we would do a kind of tour of uh, some people in the Old Testament who also were Gentiles, and yet God uh, spoke to or through or somehow uh, used them in their lives. And I, I'm doing this just sort of to set the context um, for, for Cornelius, but also because I've always been kind of interested in these people. And so that's where we're going to go first. Um, In Genesis uh, chapter 12, verse 3, uh, speaking of Abraham, it says, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that was true uh, ultimately um, for us um, through Christ. But even even before Christ, the the nation of Israel was supposed to be a beacon um, for people to come to God. uh, uh, Let's just start this, people. We're going to start in chronological order. Um, We'll start with Job. Uh, Job lived um, uh, in the same time as as the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. Uh, Job may be the oldest book of the Bible. He lived east of Canaan, and he was not a Hebrew. Uh, But, of course, we're familiar with the story where uh, he offered sacrifices to the Lord. Um, He he revered God. He uh, prayed for his... offered sacrifices for his own family members, and, the, and God took notice. And so, as the story goes, he, he tested Job, and he, he used Job to, uh, to communicate truths about himself to us. And the amazing uh, verse in the middle of Job is, you don't have to turn to all these. I'm just going to read brief portions of Scripture. We'll get to Acts 10, chapter 10 in a minute. But uh, in Job 19.25, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. What a wonderful sort of out of the blue statement from a, a man thousands of years ago, or thousands of years ago b- before Christ, who would make such a statement, uh, who, was, who was a Gentile. How about Rahab? Rahab the prostitute in Jericho. Remember the children of Israel were escaping um, Egypt and were entering into the, pom- the promised land. They, uh, they, were in, they, were sent, they sent spies ahead to Jericho to, to check the place out. Rahab uh, gave them sanctuary. She's mentioned in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, in the chapter of Heroes of the Faith. Um, verse 31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So not only that, but she actually joined the the um, she actually joined the the nation of Israel. Uh, Matthew one chapter five in the genealogy of Jesus, we we see that Rahab was David's great great grandmother or close. I'm not sure if I've got enough greats in there. Uh, 
Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, who was, of course, the father of David. So God used her in his own way. And she was not originally from the nation of Israel. Another person, moving right along, Naaman. Naaman, the Assyrian general. A couple of years ago, Mike did a great sermon, one of his best sermons ever on that story. And, uh, and just going, you know, remember that he had leprosy. He was, um, he was um, a successful general who, um, who had raided Israel and had defeated Israel. And, but he had leprosy, and the little Israel, uh, Jewish servant girl of his said, you should go to Elisha the prophet to, uh, to be healed. And eventually he did, reluctantly dipped himself in the Jordan River and, and was healed. So... Picking up in verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God on all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Elisha politely declines. Naaman says, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. He even asks God to be to pardon him for helping his his master, the king of Assyria, when he offers uh, worship to idols. He he actually asks God to pardon him for for assisting the king in doing that. Uh, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha says, "Go in peace." So uh, Naaman was accepted. Naaman learned about the true God, the living God. Naaman's also used by Jesus in, in uh, Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 27. Jesus has just gone to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's been rejected. People don't believe in him. And so he's, he's, uh, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and he's, um, he's confronting the people there with their unbelief. He said there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus, Naaman, Naaman pops up in the New Testament as an example that Jesus used to show, to show Israel their hard-heartedness. Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king. He was the one of Daniel, the first, the first king in, in uh, Daniel's captivity. Remember, he, had, he was proud and he had been... Um, he had been he was proud, and God had confronted him by making him insane for a period of time. And after that time was over, in verse 34 of chapter 4, King says, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I, was blessed, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. God used the lips of a pagan king to say such a beautiful and wonderful statement about that's true about his kingdom. And in fact, later on, uh, I didn't write this one down, but after, after God delivers Daniel from the lion's den, um, King Darius says about the same thing. He makes about the same type of, of quote. Um, these two kings, while not Jews, were shown God's truth. God chose to work through them. Moving into um, the time of Jesus' time on the earth, 
I want, I want to use this example to preview Cornelius. Here's another Roman centurion in Matthew 8 whose slave was healed by Jesus. Jesus entered Capernaum. A centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such faith with anyone in Israel. And here's a key verse for us this morning. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's you and I. That's, that's, uh, that's the Schwensons from northwest Europe. You know, that's, that's Jen from the Orient. You know, we all came from various places of, of the earth, and we were drawn to God by God's mercy. Listen to what he says about the, hard, the hard-hearted Pharisees. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I want to summarize the Great Commission later in the beginning of Acts chapter of the Acts in chapter in chapter one verse eight. Jesus says, You will receive power with the Holy Spirit when or when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So this all sets the stage for for Acts chapter ten, when Cornelius comes to know the saving grace of, of God. And I say all these things before, and that, and I'll, I'll say it again later, but it shouldn't have been a surprise that, that, that people of all the nations should be able to have free and direct access to God's mercy. And yet it wasn't quite that smooth sailing. So let, let's get right in on it. Uh, Acts chapter 10. There's a lot of verses, but they're short, so I'm going for it. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That sounds a lot like um, the beginning of Job, doesn't it? Where Job's upright life was noticed by God. God does notice when we're faithful to him. It's, it may not be recognized by man, but it's recognized by God. Uh, and that's encouraging to me. The angel said, Dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of, of those who were his personal attendants. And after, explained, after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while he was making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw that the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. 
And there were all the, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice said to him, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat." But Peter said, "By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean." Again a voice came to him a second time, "What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy." This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. God is directing the events from both sides of this, of this happening. He's, he's, talking to, he's, he's talking to Cornelius and to Peter and he's left really nothing to chance as far as the arranging of it all. It's just a matter of, are the people going to be faithful to what they've heard? And they, and they are. And so they're proceeding. Oh, and also, we see that Peter's uh, answer to his vision is going to be answered by God's coming to Cornelius. And as, as he listens to what's happened to Cornelius, he begins to understand the meaning of the, of the unclean animal's metaphor that was shown to him in the vision on the next day he got up and went away with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him on the following day he entered Caesarea now Cornelius was waiting for them and had gathered together his relatives and close friends when Peter entered Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him Cornelius doesn't exactly know how this works you know he's just not he doesn't know and so um We'll forgive him if he's just a little mis, misguided, and Peter does, and Peter's very gracious. Peter raised him up and said, and raised him up, saying, "Stand up, for I too am just a man." As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. He said to them, "You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean." That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. He said, said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now I've got to call time out a little bit here. And, you know, when I read this I thought, you know, Peter should have known better. Peter should have realized this even, there shouldn't have been any reluctance because of the history of people that God's already reached and God's already spoken through and by who weren't from Israel. 
But this is a really big adjustment for the early Christians who were all Jewish. And so um, that's why this important so story, because it's a change of, I don't know if you want to use the word paradigm or perspective shift, but this is something that's brand new to Peter as well as to Cornelius. Picking up in verse 36, The word he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know that the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which, God, which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are, all, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Isn't that a great example of the simple gospel message? You know, Peter does this repeatedly through the early part of Acts. He just sticks to the basic facts of what happened and what's true. There's no fancy philosophy needed. There's no trickery. There's no um, feeling like you need to impress. He just simply laid out what really happened and, and let that speak uh, for itself. That's a good lesson for us to do, too, if we're... If we want to tell somebody about Jesus and about what he's done for us, we don't have to, we don't have to try to dress it up in, or impress somebody with the latest philosophy or justify anything. We simply say what happened and, and uh, what we know to be true. Here comes the exciting part. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. That means the Jewish Christians that had accompanied Peter from Joppa that had come along. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. This is remarkable. And this is a, a I, don't know, so, I don't know if we would call it a turning point in the early church, but this was a real change in direction. And Peter had a lot of explaining to do in the next chapter to the rest of the early, to the rest of the early church leaders when he got back to Jerusalem. The half of the next chapter talks about him recounting the story. We're going to pick it up, in fact. I, I just love the ending of that part of Acts chapter 11. So we're going to pick up and... In verse 15, in Acts chapter 11, up until now, Peter's just recounting exactly what happened. To the, he's retelling the story to, to the other uh, church leaders. Uh, and I, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, 
Well then, who'd have thunk it? Well then, God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. I love how the Bible is written in that way and that it's very authentic in the way it describes. You can imagine this, the discussion they had and, the, and the, uh, the argument that they must have quieted down from, you know. Um, they just had a hard time believing that God could go straight to a Gentile without them first becoming Jews and then accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And that was a real stumbling block for the early church. But when they knew that when, when the real evidence is when the Holy Spirit fell directly on them, without them becoming Jews first and then believing in the Messiah, when they went straight to Jesus Christ as their Savior, that was the real turning point in the early church. That was the real, um, that's, where, that's where most of us, if not all of us, are. That's what we have to, we have to thank God for his plan that, that we could go straight to God through Jesus, through his new covenant. Well, what do we draw from, what do we draw for us from this, from this account? Um, I hope I remember correctly, but I think a couple of weeks ago in open worship, Stan, you had offered thanks about, about God coming to, to us as, as, uh, as Gentiles or at least as outsiders and that, and that we enjoy that gift. And that's something that, that's our first conclusion, whether you said it or not, that's our first conclusion. Um, I have that memory, I don't know why. We need to be thankful that we can go straight to a God who is personal, who paid the cost for our sin, and that there's no strings attached as far as external rules. Um, you know, looking back to, to Peter, before this account, in verse 28, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Before this, the nation of Israel was a beacon, and the unholy people were to come there and to discover God. And so the rules were all designed for the nation of Israel to be kept uncontaminated by the sins of their neighbors. And, and, that's what, and that didn't exactly happen. It didn't happen the way it should have or it could have because of the sinfulness and hard-heartedness of, of the Jewish nation. But however, it still was kind of clout, um, uh, influencing the way that the early Christians thought. And so that's why it was so difficult for, for the church, like with Peter, to, to reach out to people who, who were, they, who until now were not supposed to reach out to, but to allow them to come to them, now they were going to go to them. And this is, and uh, Cornelius is, is the example. It's the first fruit of this, if you will, of this redemptive work where God was going straight to Gentiles. You know, Schwensons would be Germanic barbarians if it weren't for this process, you know. You'd be, you'd be Celtic barbarians if it weren't for, for, uh, for this, the, this outreach, this outreaching work of, of God through Jesus. You know, as a picture of, of the failed, I don't know if I want to, 
forgive me if I don't quite use the right terminology here, but a picture of the, of the failed old covenant, you might say, um, is another Jew who 800 years prior to, to Peter, there was a Jew who was called to go to Gentiles and tell them God's message from Joppa. And unlike Peter, Jonah refused to go to the Gentiles. He went away from the Gentiles because he hated them, because he hated their evil deeds. And so I'm glad that Peter didn't look upon the occupying Roman army in the same way, but he was obedient to God's message to go to them and to, and to speak words of truth. I also I love how um, in God's Word He weaves these stories of parallels that that to me confirm the truth um, that's there. That that God weaves um, this plan throughout history so that you can have a comparison to Peter and and Jonah from a, from the very same town. Uh, the number point number two. Uh, okay, point number one was being thankful. Point number two is that we need to have a tender heart towards people like Jesus did. And this springs um, just as much from, from, from Peter and the early church reaching out to Cornelius as it does to some other things that I've been reading and uh, listening to and experiencing. And so I'm going to incorporate that into my sermon uh, right now. The first is a, a book that I'm reading called The God Who Is There. It's by Francis Schaeffer. Uh, it's very, um, as I'm sure all his books are, it's testing my education. And, but essentially, it is the, it's the movie series in book form, speaking about art and culture. And, and there was a, there's a paragraph out of, um, at the beginning of chapter 3, The Dilemma of Man. And I'm going to read it. He says, of, of course, it is possible to try not to get involved in man's dilemma. But the only way not to get involved in the dilemma of man is by being young enough, well enough, having, enough, having money enough, and being egotistic enough to care nothing about other human beings. And when I read that, I, it's, it struck me like an arrow going into a target set on an, an oak tree. It was... Pang, you know, it was, it just, it just really got me because that is, um, that is me in a lot of ways, and that's our society in a lot of ways, where we're so happy to protect the status quo or enjoy our good life that we don't feel the burden of people who are hurting. Um, this was reinforced to me by, by. Um, the music of Keith Green. I'm on a Keith Green kick. And for you guys, whoever doesn't know him, you guys would love him. He was from the late 70s and early 80s. And he has a song, which is kind of representative of a lot of the stuff he has written. But the song is uh, called Open Your Eyes. I thought about singing it, but I'm going to read it instead. Just the, just the verses. Open your eyes to the world all around you. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. This world is much more than the things that surround you. You must arise and open your eyes. Sometimes we're too busy to share, but Jesus wants us to care, to care. Open your arms to the naked and shivering. Open your arms. 
open your arms. We need a little less taking, a whole lot more giving. We're so safe and warm, we can open our arms. And love a little bit longer, or excuse me, a love a little bit stronger, and pray a little bit longer. Open your hearts to the ones who are desperate. Open your hearts. Open your hearts. They may never repay you, but their souls are worth it. The life you impart when you open your heart. Jesus loves all men the same, so we've got to go out in his name. I'd like to end with my experiences uh, as a rider of the Topeka public bus system. Started riding, it's been two months now. Um, and it's been really good for me. You know, it's, it saves me money, and it, um, it's good discipline for me because I have to live by somebody else's schedule. But the biggest uh, thing that it's done is that it's forced me to rub up shoulders against people who aren't like me. There are people who, you know, they run the gamut from people like me, uh, businessmen or professionals with suitcases, briefcases, to, uh, to people who mumble incoherently to themselves. And, you know, it's given empathy. It's given me empathy for people who are not in my situation. And I remember just, oh, and I'm going to end on this story. It, it reminds me of this woman that I saw at the bus station. I was sitting waiting for my bus. And um, if she had lived in Jesus' time, she would have been called um, demon-possessed. She was, she was angry. Her eyes were alive with anger. She was um, bitterly shouting, mumbling, uh, incoherent, disgusting words that where I, we were hearing half the conversation and the other half was in her mind or, and she was kind of directing it at various people sitting around waiting for their bus. It was scary. And I have to confess, the first, my first thought was, you know, if somebody put her out of her misery, she'd be better. But then instantly, I mean, that was a very carnal thing to think, but instantly right after that I thought, no, that's somebody that Jesus would walk up to and could heal and could make whole again. And, uh, you know, I just was struck by my thought process and, and what I thought first and, and then what I thought second, which was the correct response. You know, we have to have compassion for people. We have to have compassion for, for people who aren't like us. Just like Cornelius was not like Peter, you know, and the early church may have sort of put God's plan in a kind of box where they thought they knew how it was going to work, but it ended up not working quite like that. In the same way, we have, to, we have to be open to people that we encounter, people that God might want us to, to, uh, to interact with or to, to reach through us. We have to be open to that. We have to have open minds when it comes to, to people and not closed minds. Um, and that's the, really the thing that I want to, to end with, is that we just be open to what God would want us to do. Lord Jesus, um, I want to thank you for, for your saving grace to all people that you, that you um, made a way straight to yourself via Jesus Christ. Father, that you were the architect of that plan. And I'm thankful, Jesus, for your willingness to go to the cross and to love us enough to do that. Give us the power by your Holy Spirit to not reject men, other men, 
but to be open to them. Be they uh, Arabs or Persians who who are is who are Islamists, or be they uh, people who don't educate their children like us, and the gamut that runs between. I pray that we would not close people out, but that we would have an open mind to reach people for you. And give us that burden to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.